morning, everyone. Good to see you today. And uh, um, look, I just kind of want to catch you up to speed. Maybe, maybe you're here today and, uh, you know, you came for Easter and, and you, 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 you saw something here and you wanted to come back today or, or you haven't been with us for a while um, or, or, or just life takes over and you forget. But I want to take you back to September. Because we started something here in September that we've really been kind of hanging on to all the way up to the present, and, and, and it, it revolves around this question, why? Since September, we've been going through these questions, or, or, or maybe the question is the better way of putting it. It's this fundamental, basic human question that, that people have been asking of God since the beginning. God, God, why? Why this? Why that? Why do you? Why don't you? Where are you? The whole the whole thing. And, you know, maybe, maybe you're here today and, and it's, it's been a why question that's actually driven you to God, that, that, that somewhere in that wrestle and in that place, you, you've, you've had to go running after him and seeking him because, because of, of, of maybe the pain or the uncertainty or, 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 or whatever it might be looking for him in the midst of it. And... You know, I really wouldn't be surprised. I see this with a lot of people. Maybe you're here today, and it's actually been a why question that's driven you from God. That in the pain or the uncertainty or whatever it might be, the, the, the unanswered why has left you kind of distant with him and him feeling distant to you if he even exists at all. And, and we've been looking at these why questions since September. The Bible's filled with them, guys. And what's always so encouraging to me is I could see that these people from the very beginning, these people that you see coming off the pages of the Bible, were asking the exact same questions, the same why questions to God that so many of us are driving to God or driving away from God today. And what we're going to be doing this April is looking at a, 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 a select series of why questions that I think come out of a place of real heartache and heartbreak for a lot of people. And, and I want to show you the one that we're looking at today. Why, oh Lord, do you stand far off? I got to imagine that there's a good portion of you here today that have thought this, wondered this, or felt like this at times? Have you ever felt like God was far off? Or worse, have you ever felt like God had abandoned you? Now, for a small group of you here, maybe not. Um... Maybe because of the nature of your relationship with God or your personality or, or, or the life circumstances that have been dealt to you, it's really never been a question on your mind. He's just never felt far off to you. Or maybe, quite honestly, you've never had much of a connection with him. So you never really gave it much thought to begin with. It doesn't really feel different either way. But i got to believe that for the vast majority of you here today, at least in my experience, this question's been on your lips. Or even if you've never kind of verbalized it, it's been in here. It's been, you know, up here. And not just a fleeting, passing 
kind of thing, but for, for many of you, I've got to believe kind of like a thorn that just sits there in the background and irritates, and you're wondering in the midst of whatever it is, Lord, you know, where are you? Why are you so distant from this? Why, why do you stand far off? And if I am speaking to you today, um, you're in good company. I want to encourage you. I mean, this question comes right off the lips of the people of the Bible. And people throughout the scriptures have been asking this question. I want to share a few with you today, just to kind of paint the picture of how you see this come up again and again. The psalm that this is taken from, the psalmist will write, Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? There's this, this other poet who writes this song later on in the psalms where, where he says, my, my tears have been food for me day and night. Well, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? I love how this other poet of the Bible puts it. Help, just help us, O Lord. Help us, O God, our Savior, for, for your glory. Deliver us and forgive us our sins for your name's sake, he says. Why should the nation say, where is your God? I think of the prophet Joel lamenting, going, spare your people, O Lord. Why should your your people become an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should the peoples say, where is their God? There's this, uh, this, this amazingly cool story in the book of Judges. And it's about a judge, hence judges. And, I, you know, and, and you got to kind of get right with me on this because, you know, we hear judge and like, you know, you see the guy in the black robe, right? And maybe like the British like curly hair kind of going on like with the gavel. That's not the picture. That's not what it means in the Bible. What you got to think of in the Bible is like a warrior, like a hero. You got to think of like a William Wallace or a Maximus or something like this. And there's this, this, this guy, this, this utter twerp who's like more like Kip out of Napoleon Dynamite. And... You know, he's like 98 pounds soaking wet, and, and his name is Gideon, and, and it says this angel of the Lord comes to Gideon, and he comes and he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior, right? This 98-pound weakling, right? God comes to him, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior, because sometimes God knows things about who we are better than we know ourselves. But listen to what Gideon answers him. He, he says to this angel, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? I mean, where are the, the wonders, he says, that, the, that our fathers have told us about when they said, has not the Lord brought you up out of Egypt? But listen to what he says. But now, now the Lord has abandoned us. 
Guys, the Bible's filled with this. There's entire books of the Bible that revolve and orbit around this theme from, from Ecclesiastes to Job to Lamentations to arguably Revelation. Even Jesus himself in a time of utter brokenness in his native tongue, Eloi, Eloi, he says, Lama Sabachthani, God, God, why have you forsaken me if you have uttered these words, cried them, or felt them, you are in good company. The Bible is chock full of people wrestling with God and seeking God and struggling with God and angry with God and broken over this. You stand in the company of Jesus if you have said these words. Now, of course, God is not far off. And the Bible takes extra measure to communicate this. You'll see this again and again speaking into this idea that despite what it seems, despite how it looks, God is in fact not far off. I want to share some passages with you today, and and there's going to be a lot of them, all right? You could see the tabs. There's going to be a lot of them because I really need to impress this on you because I think the, the nature of this question strikes so deeply that we need to hear from its mouth itself, from its words itself, what it has to say into this question again and again And again, there's seven I'm going to share with you today. Here's number one. I love Isaiah, where God even anticipates this question. Listen to what what God is saying to his people. He says, why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary. Young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. There's this poem you can find, the song of ancient Israel, where it goes, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you is not taking a nap. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. Isn't that just like a preposterous thing to say? The Lord will keep you from all harm. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your coming and your going both now and forevermore, even getting more intimate, more deep. I love what Psalm 139 has to say. Listen to these words. 
It's a song written into this place of feeling abandoned, feeling broken, feeling defeated. Oh Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like day, and the darkness is as light to you, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's wombs. I I, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know them well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days for me have been ordained, were written in your book before one of them came to be. Number four. Listen to this, where Jesus asks, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And the answer, of course, is yes, they are. (laughs) Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God? Indeed, the the very hairs of your head are numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. How about this? Do not say in your heart, Paul will write, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? Or who will descend into deep? But what does it say? The word is near you. The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. Or how about this, where Jesus, teaching his disciples, he gives this amazing passage, let me share it with you here today, where he says this, I tell you, do not worry. Do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they 
And why do you worry about your clothes? Look at how the lilies of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was clothed like one of these. And if this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? You have little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear, for the pagans run after these things. And your your heavenly Father, he knows that you need them, but seek first him and his kingdom and all these things will be given to you as well. Number seven, it's the Last Supper. Jesus is with his disciples for a last time before the events of his crucifixion kick into high gear. It's their last time together and they kind of know it. You ever been in those situations where you kind of sense that there's something here, there's something more going on, there's something significant, it's just a meal, but there's an aura or a weight or maybe a specter about it. And you have this dread in your heart going, there's something that is going to change from here on out. It is going to be different. And Jesus sensing this, Sensing where these, these people who had followed him and given their lives and these people he loved, sensing where they were at, he says this to them. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going there. I am leaving, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. But if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Later he says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Listen to this last line, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The pages of the Bible drip with a question. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? And the pages of the Bible drip with God speaking in to this primal, basic question. I am not far off. But it doesn't feel like that a lot of times. Despite what it says, it feels like he is, especially, I think, in times of pain or suffering. It seems like God is, in fact, far off. It's a famous statue. You saw it when you watched the Olympics a couple years ago. 
stands over Rio, the fifth largest statue of Jesus in the world, which really makes me want to see the other four. And it's this, this majestic picture, statue, this, this, this majestic image of Jesus with his hands outstretched over the city with almost this sense of, of protection and watchfulness and guidance and care as he hovers over the city. And yet, as you look at this picture, you could also argue a Jesus who is removed from the city, distant, up there, while everyone is down here, seeing him only from afar. There's a piece of, uh, a, piece of a story that I want to read to you today. It's from a, uh, a poet. His name is um, Rolf, which is just fantastic. Um, Italiander. And, and, and he writes um, this, this, this poem about this, this, this poor like, man from, from the favelas of, of, of Rio, from the slums. And, and listen to what he, he says. He climbs up the 2,310 feet from the slums of Rio to the majestic statue And he says, I have climbed up to you, Christ, from the filthy confined quarters down there to put before you most respectfully these considerations. There are 900,000 of us down there in in the slums of that splendid city. And you, Christ, do you remain here? at Corcovado, surrounded by divine glory. God, down there into, go down there into the favelas. Come with me into the favelas and live with us down there. Don't stay away from us. Live among us and give us new faith in you. And in the Father, because sometimes, despite what the Bible assures, God feels like he is up there. Separated, removed, untouched, and immune from it all. Certainly with arms outstretched, certainly with the watchful eye, certainly with a vantage point that we know he sees everything, but nonetheless not down here. And there have been so many, for so many who the picture of God that they carry is of someone good, someone benevolent, someone who even likes to bless, but someone who is up there, distant and removed and, and above all of the stuff that we find ourselves mired in down here. And, and, and I want to tell you here today that if that is the picture of God that you have, that that is not Christianity. 
You may say, well, I, I, I am a Christian. I've claimed to be a Christian my whole life. I've been a Christian my whole life. My grandpa was a Christian even. I don't care. If that is your picture of God, that is not Christianity. Because the message of Christianity is not of a God who is removed from it all, standing and towering above it, untouched by suffering. The picture of Christianity is not what you see in Rio. The picture of Christianity is a God who comes down here. The picture of Christianity is a God who knows what suffering is down here. The picture of Christianity is not a God who stands far off, but who plunges himself in the midst of it. And on a cross, takes upon himself and identifies with the suffering of all people here in the muck, right down here. There's this, uh, this, this, this amazing pastor, writer, theologian. His name is, is John Stott. And he died not too long ago, but for decades he, he was the pastor of All Souls Church in England, and he has this, this paragraph that I, I've got to read to you word for word because just like the way he puts this. He writes, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as the God of the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth. A remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time... After a while, I've had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of this. There is still a question mark against human suffering. But over it, we boldly stamp another mark. The cross that symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification. In a world such as ours, I read this and it, and it got me thinking. And, and you know, I, I, I had to pull up some pictures, a statue of the Buddha in Sri Lanka. 
peaceful, serene, quiet, clean, detached, untouched by it all, removed from what is claimed as the illusion of suffering in this world, enlightened beyond it. Is this your picture of God today? If it is, know that you do not come in here with the picture the scriptures breathe. Because the message of God in the face of suffering and in the face of the question, why, oh God, do you stand far off? is I have come to be with you, down here among you to suffer and to bleed. John Stott said, for many, suffering is a big question mark. It is a big, giant question mark of why. But over that, God stamps this. Stamps this as a testimony. A testimony to say you do not suffer apart from me. I am not the God who is far off. I am the God who is near. Suffering with you and for you. The God of the cross. That's the God I believe. I want to share one final poem with you today. It's called The Silence. Mark is going to make his way up and he's going to lead us in a response to it. But, I, but, but as he comes up, I just want these, these words to... Linger with you today. From the long silence. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them. But some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering, snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. And another group, a young Negro boy, lowered his collar What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. And another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured, it wasn't my fault. 
Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven, where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear or hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered the most, a Jew, an African, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a developmentally stunted child. In the center of the plain, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges. He tried, be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be great host of witnesses to verify it. And as each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, There was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. 